What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. In the last episode, we took a look at the events taking place in the 1960s through to the late 1970s that contributed to an underlying fear that social degradation was being caused by the presence of Satan in pop and general culture. For more information on the creation and impact of the Church of Satan, the Manson family, and how movies like The Exorcist and The Omen, or books such as The Satan Seller and The Amityville Horror, all stoked concerns and moral indignation, check out the last episode. Don't worry, we'll wait for you to catch up. In this episode, we're going to march forward into the 80s and to the depths of the moral panic that became known as the Satanic Panic. I'll be discussing the history, publication and impact of the book Michelle Remembers, as well as other copycat claimants of satanic ritual abuse, how these claims were used to spark the investigation into alleged satanic activity and abuses in the McMartin Preschool in California, and how this was betrayed, hyped and misrepresented by the new Christian right and the news media. Before we do, I want to put a warning up front. Some of the claims of satanic ritual abuse will be graphic and involve disturbing and horrific acts against children. I will, however, add that many of the claims are so laughably absurd and have since been debunked. Okay, if we're all good, let's talk about Satanists, hypnosis and false memories. Michelle Remembers was published in 1980 and was an almost instant bestseller. Its claims of satanic ritual abuse of young Michelle Smith in 1950s America were sensational and validated fears that some had already had. The book chronicles the psychiatric sessions between Dr Lawrence Pazda and Michelle Smith over a period of around 14 months. How a feeling of repression grew into an account of victimisation and evil that culminates in the actual materialisation of the Virgin Mary. But let's not jump to the end too soon. Michelle Smith was a regular girl growing up in Victoria, Canada. She went to school and college and for the most part appears to have had a regular childhood. The book, however, paints a very different picture. Not just of the unusual childhood events, but of her parents and other people around her. While in college, Michelle started to see a therapist. She was majoring in psychology and wanted to explore her own inner issues. The therapist she saw was Dr Lawrence Pazda. These sessions progressed beyond college, lasting for four years. While they will stress that this period resulted in no more than a mutual respect and comfortable friendship, the fact is the friendship continued socially afterwards, and they often shared personal information. Pazda attended Michelle's wedding 
and also acted as a confidant and shoulder following the miscarriage of her first child. I'm not digging up dirt. This is actually all in the first chapter of the book. As if to counter this slightly unprofessional relationship, Pazda provides a laundry list of his credentials in the opening, just to remind us that he is a doctor and knows what he's talking about. Rolling out these credentials would become a regular occurrence for him following the publication of the book, when he was being placed on a pedestal as an expert of satanic abuse. Anyway, back to the book. Following the miscarriage, Michelle re-engaged Pazda's services as a therapist to deal with the grief and growing depression. The sessions focused on the usual, but soon Michelle was reporting something different. She described it as a pressure building inside her, which is preventing her from sleeping or focusing during the day. After several attempts using typical practices, the pair have made no progress. Then something clicks, and she feels she is able to address the pressure and what may be causing it. When she finally does, Michelle does so by screaming uncontrollably for 20 minutes. Wrapped in terror, the two claim she struggled to stop screaming and Pazda had to work hard to calm her down. The screaming was the dam bursting. What followed was a flood of accusations and claims that ranged from horrific to ridiculous. The claims reframe the family unit in which she grew up, painting her father as a violent drunk that beat her mother and would disappear for days. That her mother, Jessica, would be more loving and attentive during these periods, but was mostly distant. During one of her father's absences, her mother becomes involved with a group. The group is led by a dark male figure called Malachi, but is populated by a number of women that young Michelle refers to as mommies. During her first recount, waking up in a room and being covered in something sticky and strange, then making her way through the house, surrounded by robed men and women, looking for her. During this search, a woman picks up Michelle and French kisses her, before simply moving on to another room. Eventually, she finds her mother in the middle of a sexual act. She attacks the figure on top of her mother. The attack from the five-year-old acts as a trigger, and the others attack, beating the figure to near death. Michelle feels confused both protected and under threat. This small series of events came out over a couple of sessions, but these early events were not over yet. She followed up with a tale of how she and the beaten body were placed in a car and driven off a cliff by Malachi, to make it look like an accident. When the police and the fire brigade arrive, they find Michelle and return her to her mother and Malachi. While her mother shows no emotion about her return, Malachi wept a little, but Michelle claims that it's tears of anger because she survived. The accusations continue like this for the rest of the book until it reaches its climax. We'll get there in a minute, but first, let's look back at these previous events. While it's known that Michelle's father was an excessive drinker, there were never any reports of drunken absences. In addition, her mother was known as a social and kind woman. Things, of course, could change behind closed doors, but one thing that cannot change behind closed doors, and is never mentioned in the book, is the fact that Michelle Smith has two siblings, two sisters, 
one older, one younger, neither of whom corroborate any of the claims nor, in fact, have come out against the claims. More importantly, the book clearly lays out that police and fire services responded to the arranged car accident. However, despite repeat searches, investigators of the book have never been able to find any newspaper articles about the event or police reports. Local authorities have confirmed that if such an event was to have taken place, there would be numerous reports and investigations. Therefore, the book's validity is already strongly in question. Now let's take a look at the main event of the book, an 81-day ceremony called The Feast of the Beast. This took place in 1955, during which Michelle is buried, tortured and sexually abused all in the Ross Bay Cemetery, one of the largest in the city of Victoria, and surrounded on at least three sides by houses. The objective of the ceremony is to raise Satan and can only be carried out every 17 years. Following the abuses and assaults on the young child, the ceremony is supposed to be a success. Fortunately for the child, the ceremony is interrupted and she is visited by someone that gives her comfort and support. That someone was the Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus. Let's be clear, she doesn't claim this was a vision. She states that Mary was there. Following her survival of the ceremony, she has returned to her mother and her life appears to continue. As with the other claims, Let's take a quick look at this. 81 days is a long time to hold a ceremony in a sit cemetery. With over a hundred alleged attendees and no one notices, it's also a long time for a five-year-old to be off the grid. This was obviously looked into and Michelle's school records for this year show no long periods of absence, or even short absences for that matter. As we've seen, the events depicted in the book hold little water when looked at a little closer. However, the book was released in 1980 as a biography and total fact. The events were reported as such in People magazine, raising the book's profile and legitimacy. Michelle Remembers was a bestseller and made celebrities of Smith and Pazda for a short while. Both did the chat show circuit and lectures. Pazda in particular used the book as a platform to become known as the go-to expert on all future cases of satanic ritual abuse, a phrase that Pazda coined in an interview while promoting the book. We've already alluded to the oddly close relationship between the subject and doctor, but this was to develop further when the two divorced their respective partners and married each other. Obviously the book makes extreme religious claims. So how serious did the church take the claims? In the book, Pazda and Smith recount how they took the claims to local church leaders and their allegations were supported. So much so that they visited the Vatican. However, following the book's release and the start of the investigations into its validity, the church figures mentioned in the book all started to distance themselves from the claims and explain that either they were humouring the two or the claims of involvement had been exaggerated. So, the truth of the alleged events are shaky at best, and the figures of religious authority mentioned in the book are no longer supporting the content. So, why didn't this book fall from favour straight away?
Why didn't common sense kick in and it get dropped in the bin by regular readers? As mentioned, People magazine reported it as fact. Also, the events and rituals shared elements with those stated in The Satan Cellar by Mike Wonk, which some held up as evidence of the authenticity of the book. In addition to this, the book works as a horror narrative in the same way that the Amityville did. More than that, it validated a fear and suspicion that had been growing since the late 60s. See the last episode. This book was telling people that they should be afraid. More than that, a well-respected, highly qualified doctor was telling them to be afraid. And people were willing to listen. Over the next decade, the book became a cornerstone of the satanic panic. It was used as a reference guide for law enforcement agencies to help identify symptoms and evidence of satanic ritual abuse and satanic cult behaviour. Of course, anything that wasn't in the book, Pazda was willing to expand upon. For a fee. It was also used as a foundation piece for several TV specials, expounding on the fears that Satanists could be living and practising in your neighbourhood. These came a bit later, and we will get to those as well. While the book was growing in popularity, it would and should have been a flash in the pan. Claims that couldn't be proven would be forgotten, and the world would move on. These events had allegedly taken place in the mid-50s. There was little evidence it was still a problem. Unfortunately, that need for evidence didn't go unheeded. Two events would take place that would cement the claims as fact. In 1980, shortly after the book was published, claims were made by two girls in Bakersfield, California, that they had been abused by a local occult sex ring. The social workers that were given the case had been made to study Michelle Remembers and jumped at the claims, seeing clear signs of satanic ritual abuse. The two girls were in custody of their step-grandmother, who coached them through the claims and supported their accusations against the girls' parents, Alvin and Debbie McEwen. These accusations covered molestation and abuse in the home, as well as introducing the girls to a sex ring for further abuse. It was further alleged that friends of the McEwens, Scott and Brenda Niffin, were part of the sex ring. Shortly after this accusation was made, statements were taken from the Niffin's son, which also came up with claims of sexual and ritual abuse. The case was taken to court and set the standard for gaining information from children. Unfortunately, this wasn't a very good standard, and included leading questions and pressing the children into making claims. These lines of questioning can be traced back to the overzealous social workers that were using Michelle Remembers as their guide. The court case lasted over a year, and in 1984, the four adults were found guilty and sentenced to over a thousand years combined. This wasn't the end, though. Six other cases of satanic ritual sexual abuse were made in the same county. Of these, the largest one was against John Stoll. Accusations were taken from five children, including his own son. Stoll was also found guilty and sentenced to 40 years in prison in 1985. On the surface, this sounds like great work by a social working team and a local district attorney. Well done all involved. However, all the convictions mentioned were overturned. 
The McEwans and Niffins were released in 1996, when the claims were taken back and the step-grandmother was investigated further. I'm sure that was an awkward family reunion. John Stoll was released in 2004, having served 19 years, after all but one of his accusers, now grown, came forward and stated that none of what they had said had happened. In fact, they had known at the time it was a lie, but thought it was the right thing to do, because the grown-ups were telling them that it was. Six cases in one county in California, all within two years of the book's release, is not a coincidence. It's almost as if the book uncorked a righteous indignation that had been building since the 60s. If these books were claiming it was happening, we need to find evidence of it to prove that, that we are doing our job. Were they just looking to find something and instead creating something? These cases were horrendous enough. There were accusations of abuse and conspiracy made against parents and within a community. But things were going to get worse. By the late 70s, many households were becoming two-income families. It was more and more common that both mum and dad would go to full-time work. This resulted in the evolution of a new industry. If the parents were at work, they would need somewhere to take the kids. And so, daycare centres started to spring up everywhere. They were commonplace and became part of the daily routine, somewhere people trusted. One of these was the McMartin Daycare Centre in Manhattan Beach, California. In 1983, a mother of a child that attended the preschool reported to the police that her son stated that he had been abused by two members of staff at the daycare centre. The allegation came about because the child had blood in his stool and in, in his nappy. The child's mother, Judy Johnson, reported the evidence to the police and her suspicion that it had been caused by the child being sodomised while at the school. The two-year-old child was questioned and his answers indicated that the blame lay with Ray Buckley, the grandson of the owner of the family-run preschool facility. It is still unclear how the police reached this conclusion with the child and mother. Some have suggested that the child easily confirmed that what his mother, Judy, stated. Others, however, have suggested that the child was pressured by his mother and that the police further exacerbated the situation not wanting to appear dismissive of a single mother and her child. As you would imagine, Ray Buckley was brought in for questioning about the initial very serious allegations. However, they were also paired with a list of further allegations that Judy made about the school, Buckley and other members of staff. This is where it starts to get a little odd. The additional claims included sexual activity with animals in front of and with the children, that Peggy McMartin Buckley, Ray's mother, drilled a child under the arm, that Ray himself was able to fly around the room, and that they were taken to see a goat man. As you can imagine, these additional claims made the case a little less solid. Following a short investigation, and no evidence being found, Ray was released and no charges were pressed. However, that was not to be the end of it. Police Chief Kuhlmeyer believed there was more to the case than they knew and wanted to investigate further. Did he act tactfully, 
conducting low-key interviews and collecting evidence of activity at the preschool? Of course not. What he did was issue a letter to over 200 families that had had children attend the preschool. The letter read, Dear Parent, This department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Buckley, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested September 7, 1983 by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking for your assurance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttocks or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Buckley to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Buckley tie up a child, is important. Please complete the enclosed information form and return it to this department in the enclosed stamped return envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if circumstances dictate same. We ask you to please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. Do not contact or discuss the investigation with Raymond Buckley, any member of the accused defendant's family or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. There is no evidence to indicate that the management of Virginia McMartin's preschool had any knowledge of this situation, and no detrimental information concerning the operation of the school has been discovered during this investigation. Also, no other employee in the school is under investigation for any criminal act. Your prompt attention to this matter and reply no later than the 16th of September 1983 will be appreciated. Harry L. Colmeyer, Chief Police. As you can imagine, in a small community like this, the initial allegations had caused ripples of concern. To receive this letter threw petrol on the fire and the allegations came pouring in from fearful and agitated parents. While the letter was issued to around 200 families, close to 400 claims of abuse were received. In order to deal with the number and content of the claims and progress the investigation at pace, they brought in an expert. But when I say expert, I mean an overzealous social worker with a series of unproven therapy and questioning techniques, designed to help dig out the truth from the children. This person would become the linchpin in the early parts of the case. Her name was Key McFarlane. McFarlane was a California social worker with a master's degree in social work who introduced the idea of using anatomically correct dolls and other hand puppets to help children explain what had happened to them. Seems sound enough in theory. She was also a proponent of a newly established theory 
Child Sexual Abuse Accommodation Syndrome. This was put forward by Roland Summit in 1983. The same year the McMartin allegations were made, and two years after the claim was made in the Bakersfield, California I mentioned previously. The syndrome describes how sexually abused children learn to accept the situation they are in, in order to survive. Summit believed that this was a child's emotionally resilient response to such abuses. Roland himself would later roll back on this theory, explaining that it was misinterpreted by most and inappropriately applied in many cases. On that note, let's go back to Key McFarlane and her questioning of the 400 children. Of the initial 400, she whittled it down to 360 children that had been abused. She reached this conclusion by using her dolls and puppets and having them ask the majority of the questions. Once again, I can see how this process could be seen as sensible and gentler on the children. Unfortunately, McFarlane didn't keep it gentle. When children expressed discomfort at the questioning, contradicted previous statements, or persisted in denying that they had been abused, the puppets would say things like, You're just being a scaredy cat. You're not helping your friends. Or, Are you playing dumb? Under this pressure-based and coercive questioning, many of the children gave in and made a litany of claims. Initially, they were just agreeing to statements made by McFarlane and the police. Were they touched inappropriately? Did they see acts on other children? Each being supported by demonstrations on the dolls. As is the running theme with this case, it didn't stop there. Soon the allegations started to balloon and the mention of satanic rituals started to creep in. When reviewed, these accusations of satanic ritual abuse mirror passages from both Michelle Remembers and the Satan Seller. Once again, it was found that copies of Michelle Remembers had been distributed to members of the investigating team and I'm positive that Key McFarlane had read it and likely had a copy on her bookshelf. Other claims were made that the children were flushed down toilets to tunnels running under the school and taken to be part of rituals elsewhere. They were taken away in a hot air balloons when the abuse happened. That they had also seen witches in the preschool that had flown around on brooms and out the window. To top it all off, when one of the children was shown a picture of the McMartin family lawyer, they identified him as action star Chuck Norris and confirmed that, yes, Chuck Norris had been present at some of the events. It should be noted that lawyer, Danny Davis, had never actually worked with the family or visited the preschool before the trial started. Despite the wildness of some of the claims, the case went to trial. It started in July 1987 and would last until 1990. It remains the most expensive trial in American history, costing 15 million, and at the end of it, no one was convicted of any crimes. It became a national circus, with the news media jumping all over it, presenting uninformed speculation and conspiracy theories as fact. The nation lapped it up, and so certain individuals jumped at the chance to be involved. Early on, Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazda met with the parents of the children making the claims. It was later revealed that Pazda was used as a consultant on the questions, also reviewing and feeding back on the children's statements all to be used by the prosecution. In fact, Pazda was wheeled out more than once as an expert witness. 
which of course got him more paid slots on chat shows and news media, all helping promote the book. While physical evidence of the preschool was scant to non-existent, surely there would be evidence of abuse of the children. Not much, if any, that could be used as actual evidence of abuse. Several marks and injuries were introduced as evidence, but each would be rebutted as being easily picked up during regular childish play. What about the tunnels into which the children claimed they were flushed? Well, the school site was excavated, more than once, originally by law enforcement and later in 1990 by a private investigation. Neither found any evidence of actual tunnels, although they did find evidence of previous buildings on the site and several items of archaeological interest. Further to this, the questioning of the children themselves was called into doubt in court. While Lawrence Pazda had provided his opinion early on, the videos and transcripts of the interviews were later reviewed by clinical psychologist Michael Maloney, and he had a very different opinion. In his report and witness statement about the questioning, he stated that the methods used were improper, coercive, directive and adult-directed. To be clear, the statements of the children were what had been used to bring this case to court, and Maloney outright stated that the majority of the statements were not the words of children, rather the statements of adults that children were pressured into agreeing with. It was also confirming that the techniques used did not comply with the guidelines laid down for law enforcement agencies for investigations involving children in California. Despite all this, while the accused members of the McMartin and Buckley families were never convicted of the crimes, not all of them were actually found not guilty. Ray Buckley initially had 65 charges, this was dropped to 13. However, due to a hung jury, he was neither convicted nor found guilty. He was simply released based on time served. In addition to this, the accused families were torn apart in the media. This had a massive impact on the members of the family, several suffering ongoing issues following the trial. However, the impact expanded beyond the accused. Judy Johnson, the mother that had made the very first claims, was known to have suffered mental health issues. Due to the pressures and demands of the trial, her mental state degraded to an alleged diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. By 1986, she had succumbed to alcoholism to cope and was found dead as a result on 19th of December 1986. It was later revealed that her spiralling condition was known and this was why she had, was kept off the witness stand during the trial. In addition to this, it was recorded that she made further similar allegations of molestation against her ex-husband about her son and dog, another victim of this trial that suffered because attention was directed in the wrong place. The biggest tragedy of this case is that there may have actually been some form of abuse and molestation going on. Unfortunately, due to the inept investigation by the police, the poor and inappropriate questioning by McFarlane and the media circus that surrounded it all, any possibility of a meaningful trial and investigation went out the window. Furthermore, the trial was hampered by a series of copycat cases that sprang up around the country that also included allegations of satanic rituals, sexual abuse and increasingly bizarre claims. One case in Texas reached the pinnacle of absurdity in 1991. Fran and Dan Keller were accused of a series of abuses of children in the daycare centre they ran from their own home. 
The first allegation related to a three-year-old whose therapist connected the child's behaviour, which was previously being linked to the child's parents' divorce, to sexual abuse by the Kellers. This single allegation was repeated by the child's mother to a friend whose child also attended both the same daycare centre and therapist. After questioning, the second child agreed to statements made about alleged abuses. This was quickly followed up to, by two more children adding to the allegations. It looked grim for the Kellers. The claims included several forms of sexual molestation, which were supposedly all videotaped. However, each claim came with further details, like how the children were forced to drink blood-laced Kool-Aid, and adults all wore white robes and lit candles when the abuse happened, and that the children had also been involved in the murder and dismemberment of cats, dogs, a baby and a random adult, all done with a chainsaw. These events all happened in the home of the Kellers, but the claims didn't stop there. The statements also included a story of how the children were put on a small plane and flown to Mexico where they were physically and sexually abused by soldiers, then cleaned up and brought home to be returned to their parents. Neither of the Kellers had a pilot's licence. Also, when time tested, yes, it was taken seriously enough that they actually tested it, it was found that the trip, including the time for abuse, was longer than any child would have spent in the daycare on any single day. These were identified as acts of satanic ritual abuse by a further friend of the family, and so it was treated as a satanic abuse case by police and the Believe the Children organisation, which quickly became involved. The Believe the Children group had been created by the more dedicated parents of the McMartin children. This group supported the trial and provided access to other so-called experts. The usual names can be found, and Pazda is at the top of the list. The McMartin trial in California lasted three years and resulted in no convictions. The Keller trial in Texas lasted six days and the Kellers were convicted and sentenced to 48 years each. The Kellers were eventually released in 2013, exonerated and given compensation of $3.4 million. Great to be proven innocent, a tragedy that it took 22 years for it to happen. In this case, two of the children, now grown, came forward and stated that none of what they had claimed had actually happened. They further explained that they had been coached in what, what to say by the prosecution, members of Believe the Children and social workers. I've highlighted just a couple of the most high-profile cases that occurred during the panic. However, there were more. These were fuelled by fear, paranoia and ignorance but all of this was stoked by people that claim to have evidence of the truth in these claims. Lawrence Pazda has been mentioned several times, appearing as an expert witness or adding to the prosecution's case notes. Of course, in many cases, he was joined by then-wife Michelle Smith. But they weren't alone. Mike Wonk, author of 1972's The Satan Seller, not only appeared as a witness, he regularly preached to large crowds how these cases were the tip of the iceberg and they were all connected. This notion of a huge satanic conspiracy was latched onto by the media, and I'll get to that in a minute. But there is one more person that crops up in both cases mentioned above, and in a few others. Laura Rose Wilson made herself a part of the McMartin and Keller case by shoehorning her way into the events and evidence. 
However, at the time, she was living and writing under an alias, Lauren Stratford. As Stratford, she claimed to have been part of the McMartin Ritual Abuse Group and actually been in a lesbian relationship with Virginia McMartin. To legitimise and consolidate her claims, she wrote a book, Satan's Underground, released in 1988, in which she claims she was part of a satanic cult and used as a breeder, producing babies solely for the purpose of abuse and sacrifice. As with Wonk and the Satan Seller, the book is a story of triumph and redemption. She escapes the cult and joined an evangelical church who provided the support for her to write the book and spread the word of the satanic conspiracy. Once again, the book's content was distributed as fact and used as a training manual and warning. Unlike Michelle Remembers, which continued to be believed well into the 90s, the credibility of Satan's Underground fell apart pretty much straight away. A journalist group, Bob and Gretchen Pacento and John Trott, discovered her real name and talked to her family. They quickly confirmed that she had suffered severe mental illness since her youth and had used false names previously. When the details were published, the book was pulled from shelves and the evangelical church distanced itself from her. However, the damage was done and copies of the book would be quoted in several cases well into the 90s. Moreover, Laura Rose Wilson wasn't done. After being found out, she legally changed her name to her alias, Laura Stratford, and lived quietly for a few years. She came to prominence again in 1999, when she went on to claim she was a Holocaust survivor called Laura Grabowski. She did a number of talks about her life and collected money, claiming it was for Holocaust survivor support groups. It wasn't. She was soon found out and faded from the public eye until her death in 2002. With all these cases going on and the sensational books being released making claims of ritual abuses, satanic cults, murder, dismemberment and trips to Mexico, the news media were bound to jump on the bandwagon. Many regional and local news shows did numerous repeated scare pieces about Satanists living in your neighbourhood. But, with sensational claims, the large networks were also bound to get involved. Of these, one special stood out from all the rest, and is still remembered as prime scare TV today. That was by Geraldo Rivera, and it was called Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. The show is a 90-minute special that runs through the key topics of the scare, some of which we'll touch on in the next and final part. It provides high-level overview of several teenagers and youths that committed horrific murders. The link being, they all claimed they did it either for the devil or as an act of Satanism, at some time. I won't deny that these acts were horrendous and should not be downplayed for the awful crimes that they were. The issue is that they were all utilised to create a narrative that makes little sense. The key issue in this section is that they never actually define what they mean by Satanism. It's constantly referred to in loose terms, with no cohesive similarity. One young teen killed his mother with a penknife and then himself, having written a contract with Satan. A group of three killed another boy in their class with baseball bats. When being interviewed, one of the killers explained he did it to gain power and influence with Satan. There are a couple of others mentioned, and each has some scrap of narrative that includes Satan, but none of the same scrap. 
the one thing that they keep coming back to is the influence of heavy metal. Again, this is made from a high-level perspective, quoting out-of-context lyrics and stage acts that are allegedly directing easily influenced kids to worship Satan. To defend heavy metal, they wheel out a very confused Ozzy Osbourne, who simply says he has no connection with the devil and just wants to make music. The fear narrative is there. Short quotes about what the killers did and what they said following the murders, or even worse, out-of-context images of things they owned, mainly heavy metal albums. The weakness in this is that hundreds of thousands of people were listening to all sorts of heavy metal in the 80s, and only a few killed someone. The thing that was clear from the videos of the killers was that they all clearly had other issues. Some form of mental health issue that I wouldn't even try to diagnose. But he's clearly going unconsidered. Again, the moral scare and the media is directing away from something that could be really impacting young people and looking for an easy and sinister scapegoat. The other part of the show worth noting is a section on satanic cults. This touches on the satanic ritual abuse of McMartin and Bakersfield. While they have guests representing the organised satanic religion, the first child baptised into the Church of Satan and daughter of Anton LaVey, Zena LaFay, and Michael Quinoa, the founder of the Temple of Set, an offshoot of the Church of Satan. They are given little time to talk and they receive a series of accusations. Aquino in particular has a difficult time. A former high-ranking member of the military, he was implicated in a satanic ritual abuse case that erupted near the base on which he was initially based. The allegations were that children were being provided to a satanic cult on base for abuse and sacrifice. Geraldo actually visits what he claims is the military base and identifies graffiti that he suggests is clearly satanic. Neither he or I are experts in satanic symbology, but I'm pretty sure some of the things they claim are evidence of satanic ritual are just scribbles on a wall. As with the previous examples, there appears to be no consistency or system with anything they are providing as evidence. I'm not kidding that they identify the name Ozzy and a skull and crossbones badly painted on a wall as evidence of satanic ritual. The thing is, I could take you to pretty much any underpass in an inner city area and show you graffiti that would be better evidence, but be just as meaningless. They do provide evidence of animal mutilation and graveyard desecrations, and once again state that this is evidence of the presence of satanic cults. While these acts are awful, and rightfully scare small communities, they have no direct link to anything satanic. It's idle speculation with no theological or sociological context to support it. The show is continually filled with people claiming to be experts that simply state that these things are evidence and that they should be believed because they're introduced as an expert. The topper of it all is the claimants of satanic ritual abuse. They provide a list of kids' claims about sexual molestation, deviant behaviour and physical abuse. What they leave out are the claims of people flying around rooms, being flushed down toilets, and being flown to Mexico and back in a day. They pick and choose the emotive cases that pluck at your heartstrings and punch you in the gut. They're looking for a visceral reaction, a moment of fear and anger to brew into righteous indignation, and not to stop and look at all the evidence, 
or question what has been put out in front of them. This is a scare tactic TV show, and it's cheap at best. It's entertainment, not journalism. Later in the 90s, when the panic had died down and suspects were being cleared left and right, Geraldo actually stated in an interview that he regretted the show and how it depicted the people on both sides. Unfortunately, like with many other TV specials and tell-all books that got debunked and disowned, the damage was already done. Covering the events of this episode, we have walked through some of the most poorly handled cases of alleged abuse in modern history. Cases loaded with false accusations, mismanaged investigations, unreliable and deceptive questioning techniques, and social hysteria brewing into a modern witch hunt. At the core of this was the growth of the Christian conservative right, books like Michelle Remembers and Satan's Underground being solved as fact by irresponsible publishers and the media stoking the flames of fear and paranoia. All of these factors came together to create this amorphous satanic entity, an enemy and scapegoat that could be moulded into a hundred different ways to fit whatever narrative was being laid out. Was it a far-reaching conspiracy of Satanists abusing and sacrificing children? Or was it the heavy metal music that was growing in popularity? Or was it an actual figure of fear stalking the world, manipulating weak minds to make them evil? The tragic fact is, it was none of these. However, as of late 2019, recent history has shown that there were most definitely a network of key figures in America and the UK that were abusing and molesting young children. It's not a huge leap to think that this was happening on a smaller scale in small communities. In some cases, law enforcement was looking at the wrong side of the Christian-Satan divide. But there is also evidence of sports coaches or youth workers taking advantage. Do I believe that Satanism was running rampant in 80s America? No. Do I think absurd claims and allegations progressed by undertrained police and overzealous social workers missed actual cases of abuse and paedophilia? Yes. Do I think a media machine hungry for ratings and the next big scoop directed social fears away from a legitimate threat to such an extent that it became a bit of a joke? Definitely. The fact is, with better training and a bit of common sense, many children could have been saved. If it wasn't for the waters being muddied by ridiculous claims, morally righteous morons and manipulative fame-hungry scavengers, the satanic ritual abuse cases wouldn't have even been a thing. What we could have got is a light shone on actual, provable sex crimes. Maybe Satan was running rampant in the 80s, just not in the way Geraldo said he was. In the final part of this series, we're going to be a bit lighter in tone and get back to pop culture. I'm going to take a look at how the leaders of the moral Christian right reacted to things they deemed to be gateways to Satan. Evil things like He-Man, Dungeons and Dragons, Ninja Turtles comics and our good friend Heavy Metal Music. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Another great 20th Century Geek episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to get in contact to suggest topics for future shows or just chat about everything nerdy, you can email me at 20thcenturygeek at gmail.com. That's 20thcenturygeek at gmail.com. 
or find me on social media, Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just search for 20th Century Geek. If you would like to support the show, please go on your podcast catcher and leave a five-star review. I would greatly appreciate it. It raises the show in the ranks and lets more people know about the podcast. If you want to show more support for the podcast, we do have an Amazon wish list. Just go on Amazon and search for 20th Century Geek and you will find a list of books that will help with research for future podcasts. And don't forget, we love second-hand books in 20th Century Towers. Once again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm.